Fusion, the International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and thrum to the good vibrations of weird and wonderful science going into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature the science of wine and beer and astrobiology with Dr. Ali Ford from Monash University. But first up, here's the news with Patrick Ruby. <laughs> The oldest DNA has been found buried in salt. Scientists have discovered 419 million year old DNA intact inside ancient salt deposits. This is the oldest DNA ever found, and it belongs to salt loving bacteria whose ancestors were the first life forms on Earth. The team of researchers who made the discovery were led by Dr. Jong Su Park of Daloise University in Halifax, Canada. They found six segments of identical DNA. The first representative of this group of species, known as Halobacterium salinarum, was found living on a salt-cured buffalo hide in the 1930s. It's been found to be a close genetic relative of bugs that lived between 121 and 419 million years ago. The researchers say that the salt probably came from a mine in Saskatchewan. Rocks in the mine were formed when the sea dried up, about 300 million years ago, and the first H. salinarum spent most of its time living inside tiny brinefield defects in the salt crystals waiting for the right moment to re-emerge. These salt-loving bacteria living underground are likely to have survived several mass extinctions. The research appears in the December issue of the journal Geobiology. Frozen light being remade from sciencenews.com A cloud of ultra-cold atoms can store a beam of yellow light for 1.5 seconds and then release it again. This may not seem like such a fantastic feat, but 1.5 seconds is enough time for light to circle the Earth 10 times under normal conditions. This research has been led by Lean Howe of Harvard University. The way that the laser works is by utilising an atomic cloud. Photons are emitted from a laser, and as they are projected into the cloud, they imprint on a subset of atoms. These subset of atoms store the imprint of the light in a quantum property that's known as a spin. Usually the imprint is fragile and deteriorates within milliseconds. But the research team were able to overcome this problem by using a magnetic field to prevent the light from decaying. A 3 microsecond pulse from the laser was able to compress a stretch of light that's about a kilometre long into a space just 0.02 millimetres long. The researchers used a magnetic field 
to stop the imprint from decaying, they waited 1.5 seconds and then the team was able to revive the light beam. They coaxed the matter imprint to the outside of the cloud by changing the magnetic field and then turned the control laser back on. The light beam was able to re-emerge from the atom cloud. It was weaker than the original light beam that went in, but similar in all other respects. It is thought that one day this sort of technology might lead to better communication networks that enable quantum communication. The research has been published in the December 4 edition of Physical Review Letters. And finally, viruses transported on aphids. Sneak attack cotton aphids may be tricked into tasting a virus-infected plant and spreading the infection to other plants. The virus involved in this is the cucumber mosaic virus, or otherwise known as CMV. It infects normal garden variety squash plants and it makes these plants smell more alluring to aphids than the healthy plants do. The discovery was made by Kerry Malk of Pennsylvania State University in the University Park. The infected plants have a stronger odour but they don't taste as well which means that once the aphids have landed on a virus ridden plant they don't stay long, they move on. But this works to the virus's advantage because the virus infects only the surface of the plant. So when the aphids probe an infected plant, they pick up the virus and then pass on the virus to the next leaf that they explore. If the aphid was not to just attach to the surface of the plant and if it was to feed deeper, feeding deeper might actually wash the virus away. This virus is the first that has been able to manipulate a plant into deception. Malk and colleagues uncovered the deception through a series of tests on yellow crookneck squash. They found that odour alone in infected plants was able to draw more aphids than the smell of an adjacent healthy plant. The odour contains the same 20 or so components as scents from healthy plants and the ratio of these chemicals are roughly the same, but it's the infected plants that put out a stronger signal. Next up, we have an interview by The Ordinary Guy, from the Brains Matter podcast in Melbourne with Dr. Ali Ford from Monash University about astrobiology. G'day everyone, I'm The Ordinary Guy coming to you from Melbourne in Australia and welcome to a very special episode of Brains Matter. Today we have a special shortened episode for the 365 Days of Astronomy. You can find out more details of the 365 Days of Astronomy at www.365daysofastronomy.org and about the International Year of Astronomy at www.astronomy2009.org On today's show, I have an extract of an interview with Dr. Ali Ford from Monash University on the topic of astrobiology. If you want to hear the full two-part interview, please head over to the Brains Matter website at www.brainsmatter.com. Today we're going to be talking about astrobiology and just thinking about the title itself, astro sounds like something from outer space and biology sounds like life, so are we talking about life from outer space? 
that that's a fairly good way of looking at it. We haven't obviously found life from outer space yet, mm-hmm. um, but it's about the search for life. SETI is certainly part of astrobiology. It's one component. Mm-hmm. Astrobiology is a very wide-ranging field. It includes aspects of everything from computing and IT, artificial intelligence, through to biology, chemistry, physics, philosophy of science, um, maths, geosciences, it's got bits of everything. We found amino acids throughout the universe. Mm-hmm. We found them in um, pre-stellar clouds, in meteorites, um, and just generally in other parts of the solar system and in other parts of space. So amino acids are the building block of protein, which mm-hmm. are very important to life. So if we can find them elsewhere and there's some way of taking the magic step from amino acids to living system, mm-hmm. the ingredients are all out there. So are we making a bit of an assumption that amino acids will or could lead to life? So um, I guess what I'm asking is just because there's amino acids, does that mean there will eventually be life there given enough time? Well, that's, that's a really good point because the thing that we're missing in our study of the evolution of life is that step from inanimate objects into living systems. Mm-hmm. We've never managed to... reproduce that transition so at what point do we consider something to be life so if we have amino acids and they you know bond together and and then they form dna i'm not a biologist so forgive me if you uh if if i ask a silly question but is dna itself life or does it have to be a cell or i'm just trying to understand at what point do we consider an entity to be life that's a whole separate question in itself and that's the whole area of philosophy and various other things about that Um, it all comes down to your definition of life Mm -hmm. we would probably define life as a self-replicating system Mm -hmm. um, which uses energy from its surroundings and builds that into itself so metabolism you mentioned that they found amino acids elsewhere in the universe, how complex are these amino acids? Are they very simple or are they actually quite complicated strands like you might have found in the Yui Miller experiment? Well, living systems on Earth have something like 20 different amino acids that we've actually found. And I think something like 18 of those have actually been detected in space wow. in varying mm-hmm. ranges of complexity. Mm-hmm. So does that mean um, that finding these particular amino acids in particular areas of space, they currently exist in their current form in whatever environmental surroundings they are are in and they won't evolve any further because they don't have conditions conducive to life? Well, we don't know what those conditions are. Mm -hmm. As I said before, we haven't managed to replicate that jump from amino acids and sugars and the building blocks Mm -hmm. of all our living systems into something that is alive. So we don't know what exactly what conditions you need to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So we can't really say whether or not they will or they won't yeah. at but, this stage. <laughs> uh, I guess um, one perspective you could take on it is if these amino acids are on a planet, there's probably a more likely chance that they will evolve into something if there was conditions like um, prehistoric Earth, for example, compared to if they were in an interstellar gas cloud. Yeah. There's certain conditions we think you probably do need to enable life to develop certainly any level of complexity. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like protection from radiation, Mm -hmm. which on Earth we had in the form of the atmosphere and the oceans. Um, A a solvent. Water seems to be the thing that's most likely 
to be the best solvent for life, but there are other solvents in the universe. Mm -hmm. So by a solvent, we mean a liquid which can dissolve other molecules and allow yep. them to react together. Mm -hmm. And the third thing we need is a source of energy. Mm -hmm. So on Earth, the main one we use would be the sun. Yep. Although they've found living systems at the bottom of the ocean near black smokers mm -hmm. um, and hydrothermal vents where there is no sunlight mm -hmm. and they've evolved to use the energy stored within the Earth. Mm -hmm. So, but effectively that's heat energy anyway. Yeah, energy in some kind. Well, energy, heat is a form of energy. Mm -hmm. In all the books and um, stories I've heard and read about um, life in other places in the universe, they always talk about water and carbon and it makes sense for us on Earth because that's the paradigm we're used to. Every single living entity on Earth is carbon-based. Is that a valid assumption to make? Like you, you read in some science fiction books, for example, that there might be silicon-based life. We can't say it's a completely invalid assumption because we don't have any other samples to base it on. Mm -hmm. um, and it certainly is valid in the case of Earth because every living system we have is carbon-based and, and water-based. Mm -hmm. um, but scientifically, there seems to be fairly good grounding for mm -hmm. those substances but to be fairly prominent. nothing from a chemistry perspective to say you cannot have a silicon-based life form, or is there? There's nothing that definitely says you can't, but it would be quite difficult with our understanding because when we breathe, we inhale oxygen and the sugars and amino acids in our bodies react and produce carbon, which we respire in the form of carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. which is a gas, so we can breathe it out fairly easily. If you're um, a silicon-based organism and you inspire oxygen, when you breathe out, you're breathing out silicon oxides, which mm -hmm. tend to be solid, so sand is a good example. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a lot of complexity with how you could remove that from your system and what kind of biology you'd need to mm -hmm. be able to handle that. And energy-wise, it probably wouldn't be very efficient mm -hmm. unless there's a whole branch of chemistry that we just don't understand there. I hope you enjoyed hearing about astrobiology. For the full interview and other topics, please go to www.brainsmatter.com. I hope you continue to enjoy the 365 days of astronomy. I know, I certainly will. I'll leave you with a quote from Sir Arthur Eddington. We are bits of stellar matter that got cold by accident, bits of a star gone wrong. Bye for now. That was The Ordinary Guy from the Brains Matter podcast, talking to Dr. Ali Ford from Monash University about astrobiology. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. And next up, here's some interesting science of beer and wine with Patrick Ruby. Joe Duncan is co-owner of Barrel Brewing Company, which makes Pig's Fly beer. Pig's Fly got the silver medal at the 2008 Sydney Royal Fine Food Show for pale and golden ales. Joe has also got a degree of wine science from Charles Sturt University. I talked to Joe about the science of brewing beer and wine. There's a lot of different beers out there and, and what makes a beer unique? It's the hops, the malt and the yeast, but it's also the different combinations of ingredients that you put in, the amount of time you boil it for and when exactly you add the ingredients. 
in the beer making process that makes the beer unique. So how is it you're able to figure out when all these ingredients are supposed to go in, when, how much you're supposed to use for each of them? I mean, there must be a certain scientific method to it all. Well, uh, there, there's a lot of science behind brewing. However, um, a lot of it is, is an art. So um, with our beers, especially the pale ale, what we did was we, we benchmarked some styles from around the world, had a look at what they did, but then we um, developed a whole lot of small batches varying the ingredients and the boil times and when we added the hops. And um, It took us quite a while to come up with a recipe that we thought tasted good. We were always improving it, and we're still improving it slightly today. I've noticed that um, one of your most recent uh, beers is the Pilsner range. You have a bottom fermenting bohemium yeast, pale and Munich malts, and three types of hops. So um, do you know a little bit about what the different, how the different ingredients come together to make a different flavoured beer? Um, okay, well, uh, the, the Pilsner style, is it's a lager-style beer, and so that's why we use... Um, the bohemian sort of yeast, so it's a special clone of Saccharomyces yeast, um, which actually comes out of Czechoslovakia. And um, what also makes the Pilsner style um, special is the type of hops, and SARS hops is the predominant hop in Pilsner. We used a couple of other different hops to sort of take the edge off it and make it different and unique, so we weren't just recreating the same beer that was on the market. What else do you need when you're making a good beer? Um, clean water, so any taint that you have in the water, any mineral or any any of chlorine will detract from the quality of the beer. So the, the, the freshest, cleanest, purest water that you can get really makes for a good beer. Do you use different types of yeasts as well? Yep, we use different types of yeast for the Pilsner and for the pale ale, so a lager yeast for the Pilsner from Czechoslovakia. And for the pale ale, it's an ale, so it's fermented at a much warmer temperature and the fermentation takes a little bit longer, but the um, end result is a is a brew that is sweet, whereas the Pilsner is a brew that's fermented at a really cool temperature, and the fermentation proceeds completely, so there's no sugar left in the brew, and it's quite dry and crisp. As I understand it, beer is not the only thing um, that you've had experienced in brewing. Can you tell me a little bit about wine? Um, the first thing you do is you need to get the grapes from the vineyard, and Grapes, more than any other fruit or vegetable, take on the flavour of their environment. So each sunny day, each, um, each snowstorm, every bit of weather that runs through the vineyard that year, all the soil, it all comes together and makes a unique flavour. And the best thing about wine is that the grapes every year are different. So that's why you have vintages of wine which are different every single year because of the environmental conditions and the, and the local um, soil. So how is it that uh, different environmental conditions might make a different wine? So if you have a dry year, how might that affect the flavour of a wine as opposed to a year where there's a lot of rain? And there's a whole lot of different things that go into affecting the quality of wine and the quality of the grapes. Um, one of the most important things is the crop levels. So in a dry year, you will, won't get as much fruit set as in, a, as in a wet year. So you'll have much less quantity of grapes per hectare of vines and what that means is the grape vines can put all their energy into a smaller amount of grapes and and thus concentrating the flavours within those grapes. A lot of the big wineries from the Riverina which produce the uh, the lower end um, quality of wine produce what they would produce maybe 16-18 tonnes per hectare 
of grapes, whereas in a cool climate, where it's a little bit drier, a little bit harder to ripen grapes, we might produce four tonnes per hectare. And so you've got all that extra energy going into those grapes. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Within the grapes themselves, what is it that changes the flavour between a certain type of red wine or a certain type of white wine, like a different grape? How, how is a Shiraz different from a Merlot or something like that? Sure. Well, the, uh, the, the main thing is that they're um, genetically different plants, so they're different species of grapevine. And um, th- For example, if you have a Shiraz, that's, that's, a, that's a separate clone, and there's probably about a dozen clones of Shiraz in, in Australia. And it, and it produces a, a completely different grape to, say, a Sauvignon Blanc or a Cab Sav. Um, and key points that um, contribute to the flavour within a grape uh, would be the skin, which is especially important in a red wine because all of the colour and all of the, the, the flavonols that make up the colour and the tannins come from the skin and the seeds in a red grape. Um, and red wine is fermented on the skin and on the seeds before you press it out, so that's where all the flavour comes from. Um, what contributes a lot to a red wine is the tannin and when you're growing the grapes you want to harvest at a particular time of the year and that time corresponds to when the sugar levels are ideal to give you the right amount of alcohol for your wine but also when the tannins are ripe enough so that it's not too green or stalky so if you've ever had a, a green cab sav it's quite hard to chew on because the tannins aren't ripe so when you're picking grapes, you look at the seeds and they're browning off. You taste them, you chew them, and make sure you get ripe, ripe cedar-like tannins. White wine, you pick the grapes and you press the juice immediately off the skins and really clarify the juice. Re- remove all the pectins and all the tannins and everything you can. You let it settle to the bottom of the tank before you rack off the clean white juice and you ferment the white wine in a, in a stainless steel tank with a clean yeast, so white wines really represent the the taste of the fruit. Whereas red wines, you pick the grapes and you crush them, but then you leave the mark, which is the mixture of the skin and the seeds and the juice, all together. Then you add the yeast, and you might like to add some other things, so some tannins if you think you need a bit more tannin, or you can add fining agents, such as we use casein, which is a milk protein, albumin, which is an egg egg white, which is another sort of protein, and all sorts of different clays like bentonite clay. These fining agents you add to the wine, and it and it re- removes all the big bitter components that you don't want in the final flavour. Once the fermentation's finished, so when all of the sugar's been converted to alcohol, you press the wine off the skins and then put it into oak, and you might like to cellar it. Um, in oak for 12 to 18 months depending on the variety and what the oak does is a number of things it gives a flavour to the wine so you have a a typical cedar flavour or with American oak so cedar from French oak, American oak you might get a vanilla flavour but it also allows for micro oxygenation of the wine so if you imagine an oak barrel there's all these imperfections between the staves of the barrel and the oxygen slowly seeps in in small amounts and that oxidation of the wine inside at a very slow pace actually contributes to enhancing the flavour and quality of the wine by oxidising the biggest phenolic and tannic uh, components, which are the ones you don't want, and allowing them to precipitate out of the wine. 
and fall to the bottom. As far as I understand, it doesn't stop there. You can There are some wines which you actually keep um, in your cellar for however many years to let them age so that the flavour develops further. How is that done when they're actually bottled? How is it that there are changes to the flavour of the wine after that? Yeah, maturation of, of certain wines and the good quality wines is a really important process. And wine is a big, it's like a big slow chemical reaction. Um, most white wines have a pH of about 3.2 and a whole range of um, esters and and, and compounds within the wine that slowly change over time in a big slow chemical reaction so for example with a Riesling what you'll find is that when you pick it if you've ever had a really new young Riesling for example from the Clare Valley it'll be really fruit driven and citrusy but if you keep it and allow it to mature all of the small flavor compounds start to esterify and 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 join together in in various chemical reactions and change their flavor and the flavors will actually change to more of a marmalady apricot sort of flavour. So the wine actually improves over time. But uh, you can only keep it for so long, I understand. If you if you keep a wine for too much, you're, you're actually introducing the opportunity for oxygen to get in or for bacteria to get in, and that spoils the flavour, doesn't it? Yeah, especially with corked wines. So um, any wine with a cork, just like the oak barrels, has small gaps around the outside, so oxygen can get in too much much oxygen and you're converting your wine to vinegar, li- literally vinegar or volatile acid and um, it doesn't taste very nice at all. And also all the flavours, if you have too much falling out of your wine, which is what produces the crust on the bottom, if too much of the flavour falls out, you're left with a really thin, acidic um, substance which really isn't worth drinking. Thank you to Patrick and Joe. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on the website www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was The Ordinary Guy and The Not-So-Ordinary Guy, Patrick Ruby. Diffusion will be produced by Patrick Ruby in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon. It's been proven to be true, like one and one are two. It's checked and double-checked, a fact that can be backed. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that there are belts of radiation in outer space, which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact.
Well, of course, even scientific facts are not perfectly exact, but they are as exact as it is humanly possible to make them at the time. It's a scientific fact, a scientific fact. It has to be correct, it has to be exact, because it is, because it is a scientific fact.